Hi everyone, welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast where legends share legendary stories. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money and also writer-director of We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. This episode, In the Dugout with Larry Durker. We take a look into the life and career of Houston Astros legend Larry Durker. The Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast is brought to you by the Hampton Inn Waco. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and when you do, book your stay at the Hampton Inn Waco. Hi everyone, welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast where legends share legendary stories. This episode, In the Dugout with Larry Durker, a Houston Astros baseball legend. Durker pitched, managed, and broadcasted for the team at different points in his career. As a pitcher, he still holds the franchise records for starts, complete games, innings pitched, and shutouts. He was the first Astro to win 20 games in one season. He threw a no-hitter for the Astros in 1976. After retiring from the Diamond, he worked as the Astros' color analyst on both television and radio. The Astros later hired him to manage the team in the 1990s, and he guided them to four division championships. Durker won the National League Manager of the Year Award in 1998. He's also written two books and is noted for his baseball history research. The Astros retired his number in 2002. He was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1998. Durker grew up in the Los Angeles area around the San Fernando Valley. He followed Pacific Coast League baseball as a child before the Dodgers moved in. His favorite team in the Pacific Coast League was the Hollywood Stars. He tells us how he first started playing baseball. I went down to the local park for tryouts for Little League, and I wasn't old enough. You were supposed to be eight years old, but my dad took me and my brother down there just to watch. It ended up that they needed a couple more kids, and I was tall for my age, so they said, you know, you over there, uh, can you play? And I said, yeah, well, you know, throw some and catch some, and, you know, we've been doing that with Dad, so I got on a team when I was seven. Durker likes to say that his young start in Little League foreshadowed his young Major League Baseball start. While in high school, he attracted scouts from just about every Major League team. He also earned scholarship offers from UCLA and Stanford. Durker wanted to play pro ball, but his dad leaned toward accepting a college offer. Durker was only 17 at the time and needed his dad to co-sign for a Major League contract. I really wanted to play pro ball. So he said, if they don't offer you $30,000 or more, uh, I'm not going to co-sign with you, and I'm going to assist you go to college. So that's what I was hoping for, and the Cub Scout called and offered me that exact number. The Cubs offered him 30000 but the Scout asked Larry to promise not to sign with Houston that night to give him time to check with the Cubs' front office to sweeten the deal a bit. Then Larry received a call from the Colt 45s. The Colt 45s called shortly thereafter, and offered me $35,000. 
And so then I was thrilled, and when I said I can't sign tonight because I promised Mr. Hanley that I wouldn't sign until he talked to Chicago. So they called me about a half an hour later and offered me 40. By the time they got finished, uh, before I went to bed that night, it was $60,000. $60,000. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Inflation Calculator, that's about $500,000 in today's money. To a 17-year-old, that's a ton of money. Major League Baseball thought so too. And the next year, 1965, they started the amateur draft hoping to cut down on signing bonuses. That's the reason that they started the draft the next year is because teams, they felt like they were spending too much money in competitive bidding and they would be able to get the players they wanted for the prices they wanted to pay by having a draft. It didn't work because as soon as they did that, the players started getting agents because they realized if you put all your eggs in that basket for drafting a guy in the first round or the second round, you couldn't very well not sign him. So they used that leverage, and the big bonuses just kept right on coming. But for me, the competitive bidding helped a lot, and that's the only time in my career I got to be a free agent. Durker signed with Houston and spent most of 1964 with their rookie league team. I went down to Kokomo, Florida to play in a rookie league. It wasn't even really a minor league because we had a dormitory down there where we had spring training. And uh, all the players that signed with Colt 45s, the Tigers, the Mets, and the Twins all stayed in that dormitory, and we played each other. So we really never even took a bus ride. Larry had an impressive rookie league campaign. The Colt 45s asked him to work out with the big league club in late September. The Colt 45s were about to finish next to last in the National League. Someone in the PR department noticed that Larry's 18th birthday was coming up, and asked management if Larry could start the game on his birthday. Management agreed, and Larry started against the San Francisco Giants on his 18th birthday. There he was, barely out of high school, pitching against a lineup with future Hall of Famers Willie Mays and Orlando Cepeda. Larry says he wasn't overwhelmed, however. He knew he could throw strikes in the major leagues, just like he threw strikes in high school and he had movement on his fastball. Just like in Little League, he suited up younger than usual in the majors. A starting pitcher on his 18th birthday in one of the last games played at the old Colts Stadium. The game got underway, and Willie Mays soon came to the plate. Larry remembers the at-bat for us. I threw him a changeup for some reason, uh, which was a, really not a good pitch for me, and he hit, hit it about 450 feet, but he hit it foul. Then with two strikes, I threw a slider that started off at him, and he bailed out, and it broke over the inside part of the plate. It was a called strike three. Prior to that, the first player I faced in my career was Harvey Keene, and he was a former batting title winner, but he was near the end of his career, and I sailed a couple of balls over his head in that at bat, so I don't think Willie was really digging in too much. <laughs> and uh, when that slider started coming at him, he was, he was getting out of there. Whether Mays worried about Durker's control doesn't matter. Larry can always say he rang up Willie Mays looking at strike three on his 18th birthday. Durker didn't have as much luck against Orlando Cepeda, however, who hit a home run. Durker was a losing pitcher of record, but he pitched well enough to earn a chance to pitch in two more games that season. The next year, 1965, 
was the start of big things for both Durker and the franchise. Still 18 years old, Durker made the Major League roster. The team changed their name to the Astros and started play in the new Harris County Domed Stadium, later known as the Houston Astrodome, and dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. It was an architectural marvel of its day, and Durker tells us about the first time the team saw their new indoor stadium. When we got to the Astrodome after spring training the next year, it was all lit up inside, and so we were all eager to get in there and, and see what it looked like. And so we got off the bus and, and went out into the stadium, and it was just breathtaking. I felt like I had walked into the next century, which is sort of ironic. I remember saying that. And when we moved into the next century, we moved out of the Astrodome and into Enron Field, now Minute Maid Park. So even though it was fabulous it didn't even last past the year 1999 that was at 2000 we moved but it was so colorful all the levels of seating were different colors all the seats were theater style cushioned and everything you know with with the roof on and the lights and the, at that point the bright green grass i don't think it was just because i was 18 years old i think the the veterans that were 35 years old were pretty much impressed it was just it was breathtaking, and I think everybody felt it. For you trivia buffs out there, Mickey Mantle hit the first home run in Astrodome history in an exhibition game between the Yankees and Astros before the 1965 season started. The mid-60s were a golden era for Major League Baseball, and many iconic players were in the prime of their careers. Larry tells us about pitching to home run king Hank Aaron, the man nicknamed the Hammer. First time I faced him, the first pitch I threw, he hit over the left field fence. And uh, that was in my rookie year, and it was in Milwaukee. The Braves were still in Milwaukee. So uh, pitching against him through the years was difficult for me and everybody else. Once I got to where I had better command of my control, I competed against him a little better. But at first, he just got up there looking for a fastball, and he could hit anybody's fastball. And he ended up... Uh, hitting, I think, seven home runs off of me, which is the most anybody hit. But I don't recall that he was any more difficult than some of the better left-handed hitters maybe during the second half of my career because I got to the point where I could keep the ball low and away. And if you did that, you know, he might hit the ball well, but he wasn't going to hit a home run. And so most of those home runs were probably in the first half of my career. And in the second half, uh, I had some success against him by pitching him low and away. Once I was able to do that, I was able to come back inside again with some success. But until he knew that I could keep pitching away all day long, he was going to stand there and wait for a fastball middle in and hammer it. And, of course, that's how he got his nickname. Larry also shared about Pittsburgh Pirates legend Roberto Clemente. That's another interesting story. In Pittsburgh, I hit him with a pitch and it broke his wrist. And I saw him that night at the hotel where we were staying. He was part of some sort of charity dinner or something, and I apologized. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. That's part of the game. But after that happened, I never had any trouble with him. So, you know, there's always the thought that if you intimidate somebody, they won't be able to hit well against you. I absolutely don't think that's true at all. I think there are plenty of guys that hit him, and he went right on hitting them. 
But it just so happened that I was fortunate against him. I had a lot of luck throwing sliders and usually hit the ball on the ground. And so usually if he got a hit, it was a single. And a lot of times, you know, he just went out six to three, four to three, five to three. I don't even know if he hit a home run off me, but I did watch him play. I saw him hit plenty of home runs. I saw him display his throwing arm. I saw him leap up against the wall in the Astrodome and catch a line drive but would have been a double if they ran straight back to the fence and leaped into the air, spun around to where his back hit the wall and caught the ball all at the same time and came down throwing. So a lot of people think that was the best defensive outfield play ever in the whole history of the Astrodome. Durker says Matty Alou might have given him the most trouble. He explains why. People sort of sometimes are surprised when I mention his name. But I think his lifetime average is over 300, and he did win a batting title one year, so I wasn't the only one. The thing about him was he was a fast runner, and he was a spray hitter, and he would chop the ball, bloop the ball, and it just seemed to me like no matter what pitch I threw, no matter what part of the strike zone, he would hit it. He didn't always hit it well, but it always seemed to find a hole, and he just always seemed to be on base. Durker spoke of one other hitter who gave him trouble one-time teammate Joe Morgan. The Astros traded Morgan to the Reds before the 1972 season. Durker told us about how difficult it was to pitch to the five foot seven Hall of Fame second baseman. I remember him being really, really tough, more than Matty in the sense that he had home run power. And he was only about five seven, so, uh, and every year he walked more than 100 times. So you didn't want to walk him because he'd steal a second. And yet you didn't want to throw one over the middle of the plate because he might hit a home run. Trying to deal with a small, in stature, left-handed hitter was probably the biggest challenge for me because if a guy's not too tall, he's got a small strike zone. And if he has home run power, you're trying to hit corners and change speeds, and you have to do it into a small area. Durker also compared Morgan with current Astros second baseman Jose Altuve another player with a similar frame who does serious damage at the plate. Durka also told us how today's era might give Altuve a different approach to a plate appearance. If you look at Altuve, he's got a tiny strike zone, but he swings at everything, so you don't really have to worry about walking him. With Joe, you really had to worry about walking him, and especially in that era, because in that era, the stolen base was a bigger part of baseball than it is now. If you walked Altuve, he could steal second, too. But most of the time, they put the stops on him because the next guy up can hit a home run. And so now the theory is if you get on base, don't get thrown out because somebody might hit a home run. When we return, we'll talk about two of the most special days in Larry Durker's playing career and discuss his winning career managing the Houston Astros on In the Dugout with Larry Durker on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco. Hi guys, this is the Rocket, Roger Clemens, and you're listening to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. If you've enjoyed listening today, please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells a story of the greatest athletes and coaches in Texas history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, 
be sure and stay at the Hampton Inn Waco, located just eight minutes from the museum on I-35. The Hampton Inn has recently been renovated and includes free hot breakfast, free Wi-Fi, and an indoor-outdoor pool. And since the Hampton Inn is the official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you never know who you might bump into in the lobby. Hey, is that Earl Campbell? Welcome back to In the Dugout with Larry Durker on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco. Larry Durker had a memorable pitching career in the major leagues. Remember, he started his first game on his 18th birthday. Another memorable start came in 1966 when he was just 19 years old. Durker faced Sandy Koufax at Dodger Stadium. Durker pitched a shutout, and the Astros won three to nothing. So it was special. It was in my hometown, which was special. All my family and a lot of friends were there, which made it even nicer for me. I remember that Bob Astromani hit a home run. So we got three runs off Sandy, which he usually didn't allow that many. And if you were going to get that many runs against him, it was probably your only chance to win. Durker told us he learned a valuable lesson pitching against Koufax in a previous game at the Astrodome. I pitched against him earlier that year, and probably only within, within the month, I pitched the game against him in the Astrodome and lost that game. I recall that in that game, I was overthrowing you. Know, I, you know, having grown up in LA, I was pretty familiar with Sandy, and I knew that he was regarded as the hardest thrower in the league, and and so I, I threw pretty hard myself, and I went out there trying to prove I could throw as hard as he could, and I was a little bit wild. They got a few runs off me, and I lost. And so, the second time around, I said I can't go out there and try to throw as hard as Sandy. I've got to try to go out there and just get zeros on the board, and so uh, luckily I did. David Barron, a sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle, points out that Durker often proved himself in games against the greats. He was part of an era when pitching dominated. He, I think he actually at one point uh, had a win over Bob Gibson in 1968, which was the year in which Gibson had an ERA of 1.12 and perhaps had the most dominant pitching performance of any year in my lifetime at any rate. He won games against Marichal. He won games against Warren Spahn. He won games against Ferguson Jenkins. He won games against at least a half dozen pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame. So he could hold his own in his era. Larry's best season came in 1969. He was a 20-game winner, the first in Astros history. He posted a career best in strikeouts and ERA and threw 20 complete games. That's right, 20 complete games. One thing that's remarkable about Larry's 1969 season is that Major League Baseball lowered the mound in 1969. 1968 was the year of the pitcher. Bob Gibson had a 1.12 ERA in 1968. Kari Stremski led the American League in batting with only a 301 average. Major League Baseball looked to boost offense by lowering the mound. Across the major leagues in 1969, there were more runs scored, higher scoring games, and pitchers had a much tougher time. But Larry Durker had the best season of his career. I asked him what his secret to success was 
in overcoming the new major league rules to increase hitting in 1969. That year we got Johnny Edwards from the Cardinals in a trade, and he was a great catcher, and working with him, I think, helped me get to another level. Uh, throwing breaking balls behind the count, trying to get a guy to hit a breaking ball in the dirt with a man on third. Most catchers wouldn't call for that, but he would. So that gave me a lot of confidence. I don't think lowering the mound made much difference to me, and I don't know why. I was still throwing overhand at the time. If, if you throw sidearm, a lower mound is fine. The guys that really got an advantage from a higher mound are the guys that threw straight over the top. So even though I did, I think that the fact that my control improved and I had a catcher that believed in that, and so I started throwing more breaking balls and off-speed pitches behind the count. I started doing the things that the veteran pitchers did, and I watched a lot of pitchers do those things, but I was young, and I tried, and up to that year, I, I just wasn't quite good enough to do it. And in that year, I became good enough to do it. Durker also mentioned the extra incentive of the Astros' first pennant chase. The team started out 4-20, and the 20th loss a no-hitter tossed by Jim Maloney of the Reds. Don Wilson of the Astros threw a no-hitter against the Reds the next night, giving Houston only their fifth win of the season, but the team followed up with a five-game win streak. That wasn't their only win streak that year. The Astros had two 10-game win streaks during the 1969 season. Although Durker was on the road to winning 20 games in 1969, he needed to balance baseball with military service. Durker served in the Army Reserves. Can you imagine a 20-game winner serving in the Army Reserves during the season today? It happened in 1969. In fact, Durker says it wasn't all that uncommon for younger players. Young players that signed out of high school and didn't have a college deferment got placed into National Guard units and Army Reserve and that sort of thing. So I was at Fort Polk in Louisiana, not too far from Houston. Durker balanced baseball with his Army Reserve duties. In June, he got a Sunday off from the Army to pitch against Steve Carlton in the St. Louis Cardinals. Durker made the most of the day on the mound and with his bat. We had the middle weekend off, so uh, I came into Houston and pitched on Sunday afternoon. In this particular game, Carlton gave up a cheap run on a bad bounce or something or a broken bat, and I did the same thing. So after 9, it was 1-1, to and then after 10, it was 1-1. to He came out of the game. I pitched the top of the 11th, and in the bottom of the 11th, I came up with two outs and a man on second base. The only hitter we had left was a left-handed hitter, and our manager, Harry Walker, thought I had just as good a chance, so he said, I'm going to let you hit here, but you're not going to pitch anymore if we don't get this run. And I ended up hitting a ball into left center and driving in the run and winning the game 2-1. to one. Larry adds that his big game put him in high regard with his Army buddies. I had managed to get a lot of tickets for the people that were in the reserve unit I was in. They all came into Houston, too, to watch the game, and a lot of the officers were up in the stadium club having cocktails and eating steak. And so I was the favorite son when we got back for that second week of summer camp. I was allowed to sleep in. I was allowed to do pretty much whatever I wanted to do after that. On September 10, 1969, the Astros were 10 games over 500 and only two games out of first place in the National League West. A slump dropped them out of contention, but the team ended up with its first 500 season in franchise history. 
Durker pitched a total of 13 years for the Astros, and there were only a handful of seasons where they finished at or above the 500 mark. They never finished above third place in their division. Despite mediocre teams, Durker usually held a winning record. He was twice named a National League All-Star. Durker himself never finished more than three games under 500 and pitched above 500 for several straight seasons. David Barron reflects on Durker's pitching talents. If he'd been with a more successful team, who knows what his eventual record might have been. He certainly exceeded the norm and excelled in playing for an exceedingly mediocre team at a big ballpark. Durker says that long outings eventually took a toll on his arm. Early in his career, he threw over the top, but later had to drop that motion down to compensate for arm soreness. In 1976, his last year in an Astro uniform, he put everything together for a no-hitter at home against the Montreal Expos. It was the last year that I really did any significant pitching. So when the last out was made, I was thrilled as anybody would be. And I also, I felt like in a way it was a gift from God just because I hadn't come close to pitching a no-hitter for years. And I did have a couple of no-hitters in the ninth inning when I was younger, but I was at the point where I was throwing almost sidearm and I didn't throw nearly as hard. And so I had to hit corners, I had to change speeds, I had to use everything I could just to win a game. And in that game, when we were playing the Expos in the Astrodome, I really didn't think very much about pitching a no-hitter till about the sixth inning. Durker said the excitement of a possible no-hitter may have helped his fastball. I was just more or less a finesse pitcher at that point. But once I saw that I had a no-hitter in progress, I noticed that I had a little more life on my fastball. I think I just got a huge kick of adrenaline, and I started throwing hard like I hadn't thrown in years. My fastball was sailing. It was moving in towards left-handed hitters. But uh, because I was throwing sidearm and throwing four seam, cutting under it, it wasn't going down. It was more on a, a level plane, and that was a fly ball pitch or a strikeout pitch. And uh, the last two innings, I threw all fastballs, and I think I got three strikeouts and two fly balls and a grounder to end it. But basically what I remember is that I went from a finesse pitcher to a power pitcher during the course of the game. He adds that there was one more important element to his no-hit performance. There's always a little bit of luck. There was one guy that pinch hit and hit a ball, out to the warning track in right center, and that might have been a home run in some other ballparks, but in the Astrodome it wasn't. So, you know, everything has to go the right way to pitch a no-hitter. The Astros traded Durker to the Cardinals after the 1976 season. He spent one year with the Cardinals and then retired. Durker got a job writing a sports column, but hoped to get into announcing. He got into the Astros' broadcasting booth in kind of a roundabout way. Before spring training that next year, I went out to interview the marketing director because the Astros had finished about 40 games out. My theme was going to be, how do you sell tickets to come to a game and watch a team that's in last place 40 games out? Before I even talked about that, he asked me if I'd ever thought about getting back into baseball. And I said, yeah, if the opportunity was right. And so then he asked me about selling tickets and group sales and season ticket sales. 
that's when I chimed in with, well, you know, what I'd really like to do is get up into the broadcast booth. And so he said, well, that's good because we're going to do about 30 games on TV this year. We could probably work that out for those road games if you do the sales when you're in town. I found my way into the booth that way, and then after I'd been there a couple of years, they decided to have me on radio as well to do all 162 games, and at that point, I could make enough to shed the ticket sales job. Larry worked in the Astros broadcasting booth from 1979 through 1996. When Tal Smith worked as GM, he sometimes asked Durker for opinions about the team. Smith later got the job as president of baseball operations. He asked Durker for a meeting after the 1996 season. I got to his office and we started talking about the team. I didn't think much of it. But after about an hour, he said something like, well, you know, you have got a pretty good grip on what we're doing here. Maybe you should manage the team. And I just laughed, you know, because nobody ever went from the booth to the dugout. And guys that managed usually started off managing in the minor leagues and had some experience. So I just laughed when he said that. But then a few minutes later, I saw the general manager walking around out there in the reception area. Then they brought some sandwiches in, and we talked to uh, all three of us. And then I began to be suspicious that there was an agenda. After a while, I saw the owner out there, and that's when I realized they really were going to ask me about managing. Durker conferred with his wife and agreed to accept the job. The Astros held a press conference and announced Larry Durker as their new manager. Larry enjoys telling the story of how his new spot in the dugout garnered him tons of attention literally overnight. His son had games the night before and the night after the press conference. We went to his game and sat in the bleachers with all the parents that had kids in the game, and we knew all these people from Boy Scouts right on up. And so we just talked about the game, and it was nothing unusual happened. Then the next morning, uh, it was announced that I was the next manager of the Astros, and I had the TV crews out in my front yard, and my son had a game that night and when I went out to his game and sat in the stands with the same people, people started coming from all the fields around and wanting to take pictures and get autographs. And I thought, isn't that unusual? You know, it's not who you are, but what you do or what your job is, because I was the same person that night as I was the night before, but I didn't get any attention the night before, and all of a sudden I was a big hero the next day. Durker led the Astros to four division titles in five seasons. Prior to that, the franchise had only won two division titles in its entire history. I asked Durker what he thought led to his managerial success. Good players. Any manager would tell you that. Uh, it's impossible to win without good players. That's a simplification because some guys may be able to get a little bit more out of the same talent than maybe somebody else would get, but usually not enough to make a, a huge difference. Durker managed the original Killer Bees. The group was Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, Derek Bell, and Sean Barry. He says it was easy managing the team from an offensive standpoint. He shared some of his offensive philosophies with us, much of it gleaned through reading baseball analytical research by writers such as Bill James and Pete Palmer. Larry was ahead of his time using such research, but says it helped him devise the Astro offense. 
which was basically I wanted to swing away, not bunt very much, not hit and run very much, but we have speed. And so uh, my idea of our offense was do enough running to where the pitchers always had to be concerned with a fast runner on base that might divide their attention and might cause them to make a mistake and throw a pitch to somebody that can hit the ball out of the ballpark. And that was a pretty simple approach to offense, but it worked quite well. One thing that's kind of funny about that is that I told the hitters if they saw somebody stealing not to take the pitch, but that if it was down the middle and a good pitch to hit, to go ahead and whack it. And so a lot of times when we had guys running, our hitters got hits. People were saying, well, you really have a good touch with a hit and run. It seems like every time somebody's running, the hitter gets a hit. I'd go, yeah, well, it really wasn't a hit and run. The guy was stealing, and the guy got a good pitch to hit. Durker had tremendous success as a manager, but couldn't duplicate that success in the postseason. Houston never made the league championship series in his five seasons as manager. And in 1999, he suffered a grand mal seizure in the dugout. He missed over 20 games recovering from a successful surgery. He still guided the Astros to a divisional championship that year, but left his post as manager after the 2001 season when he captured yet another divisional crown. He returned to the broadcast booth for another couple of seasons. Since then, Durker has written two baseball books. His website, 49sfastball.com, hosts his fantastic Larry Durker's Baseball Library. The idea had roots when he worked as a broadcaster, looking for something more interesting than a quick pre-game interview. Inspired by syndicated radio host Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, Durker sought to do something similar regarding baseball history. And I had been keeping a file on things that happened on every day in baseball history. Say Willie Mays hits four home runs. And I got the newspaper and I wrote a script for how it happened. And then I would call Willie and record his memory of it and plug that into the show. The clips are now hosted on his website, 49sfastball.com. Larry's 49sfastball.com is a treasure trove of great content. Features audio clips with all-time greats, some like Joe Cronin, who had passed on. And Larry also shares his own baseball memories and his own experience in the major leagues. Larry Durker was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 1998. He spoke about the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and what the honor means to him. The bigger stars that were in the same class that I was in were uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, and uh, Roger Clemens. And so I thought to be included on that class puts me in with guys that were in their National Hall of Fame. So that was big. Later on, they retired my number, and that was pretty big, too. I got the manager of the year award in 98, and that was big, too. So I would say those three things. I'm not going to Cooperstown and get into that Hall of Fame, but the Texas Sports Hall of Fame means a lot to me. I would encourage anybody that's anywhere near Waco to plug a couple more hours into your journey and stop by and visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame because it's not just me, it's not just baseball, it's not even just professional sports. It's college, it's high school, it's everything having to do with sports in Texas. And you've got some great displays up there. I think anybody would feel like it's time well spent. 
David Barron sums up how deeply Larry Durker's name is entrenched in Houston's baseball lore. How much time do you have? He was a 20-game winner. He pitched a no-hitter. He was in the major leagues at age 18. He struck out Willie Mays in his first game. He was a stalwart for many years in the, in the early years of the Astrodome uh, in the 1970s, and he became a very uh, significant part of their broadcast team. But he got into the playoffs for the first time in 17 years and was a manager of some of their best teams. And then came back and did a little bit of broadcasting and above and beyond that is one of the better historians of the game in terms of his baseball library of anecdotes that he used when he was on the air and that you can still find on one of his websites. So he's as deeply ingrained in the culture of Houston baseball as anyone. Thank you for listening to In the Dugout with Larry Durker on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast where legends share legendary stories. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. And when you do, be sure to stay at the Hampton Inn Waco. The Hampton Inn Waco, proud sponsor of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast.